Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I see Jeremy Pelzer just posted a story that First Energy has a new CEO. The acting CEO has been named. The guy who actually started with the utility as a meter reader. Maybe he'll clean house. We'll see. It's this week in the CLE from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Happy Monday, both of you. Happy Monday. Thank you. Grumble, 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 grumble. It's Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start. Have Brook Park prosecutors ever heard of the First Amendment? Are they really trying to criminalize criticisms of a nursing home posted on Facebook? Laura Johnston, this is truly a mind-boggling story. It's, it's what happens when you have small-town prosecutors who just kind of take things into their own hands. Take us through what this story is about, please. This is bizarre that they would get involved, but a 64-year-old woman posted on Facebook blaming a Brook Park nursing home and its administrator for her mother's death. And this has become this big First Amendment case. So lawyers representing Gina Crisioni say that this first degree misdemeanor telecommunications harassment and menacing by stalking charges. Think about those charges she faces because of these criticisms of East Park Care Center. They violate her freedom of speech. So they had a hearing on Friday about this to determine whether there's enough evidence for this even to go to trial. That ruling is expected this week, and if the case goes forward, there'll be another hearing to discuss the First Amendment issues. But this is really interesting. She like posted on Facebook, and she called the front desk of the nursing home asking about her mother, and all of a sudden, this has become an issue that she was harassing and stalking. And the attorneys say that this would send a message to anyone who dares criticize a business or medical institution that they face this wrath of a vindictive business owner, and it would really quash people's ability to, to speak freely about anything. But back up a second. This started with just the criticism on Facebook that she she attacked this place because she felt like the care of her mother who died was not good. And the nursing home went to the city prosecutors and they lodged the charge against her after First Amendment attorneys from all over the place, professors and even one in California came out of the woodwork to say, what are you thinking? This is First Amendment. You're allowed to criticize. Uh, and it, and if it's anything, it's a defamation case where you go to court in a civil suit. They The prosecutors, you know, because prosecutors always refuse to admit they might have made a mistake, they then hit her with the telecommunications harassment charge because she had called the nursing home 2,000 times in the 18 months, the last 18 months of her mom's life to either talk to her mom or to ask about her condition. Something that's appropriate, especially given what we've all learned during the pandemic. 
So prosecutors come up with a bogus charge to start with, but based on her violating her First Amendment rights. And then when they start to get major criticism for it, they pile on with more charges to try and justify what they're doing. It's really quite inexcusable. What are city prosecutors thinking doing this? I mean, if this is truly the kind of thing that can send you to prison, why isn't this with the county prosecutor who's much more skilled about prosecuting felonies? I mean, that's a really good question. I would think that the county prosecutor would say, I'm not touching this. So yeah, you you wonder what the relationship is between the city prosecutor and the the business, if they just think they're trying to protect a business in their town or what. But you, I mean, this is weird. We don't see these kind of cases a lot. No, it's, and it's, it's a shock and, and good for the attorneys that are fighting this on first amendment grounds. The people of Brook Park really ought to come up in arms and, and ask whether they need a new prosecutor. Cause this really is inexcusable. You're allowed to criticize businesses. There's no law that puts you in prison because you criticize a business. If they feel like you have unfairly tarnished their reputation, they could sue you for defamation, not lock you up. And oh. if you think about it, that's what the entire websites are built on, like Yelp, right. right? Like it's there so you could lodge your thoughts about a business. It's just not criminal. And, then, and to try and criminalize this, especially a woman who lost her mother at the nursing home. And, you know, I don't know what the timing of this is, but if, if the mother died during COVID, it means that the daughter wasn't able to see her right. in her final months. And so let's Tense add all the calls. Yeah, let's add to her pain by now threatening to lock her up it's this week in the CLE. What's the latest allegation of wrongdoing lodged against the disgraced former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder? Jane Coon, we've talked about this before. These election finance charges pale in comparison to what this guy is facing. But man, (laughs) they just keep adding up. They they do keep piling up. I I do hate to say this is almost meaningless, but I do think it is almost meaningless. Uh, Secretary of State Frank LaRose filed yet another complaint against Householder with more campaign finance violations. And uh, this is on top of ones that he's already made. But the new complaint says that Householder accepted contributions from five separate donors that exceeded the limit under state law. The only donor that LaRose identified is Juan Cespedes, who's a former lobbyist who's one of those charged along with Householder in uh, what federal prosecutors say is the largest bribery scheme in Ohio history, as we've talked about before. But so in, in July, LaRose filed like 162 different campaign finance charges against Householder and the other Cespedes and the others who, who were charged. And then separately, Attorney General Dave Yost filed a separate complaint. This was already months ago, accusing Householder of improperly using almost a million dollars in campaign money for his legal defense. But anyway, the reason I said these charges are almost meaningless is because the State Elections Commission is they're just hanging back until the criminal case is resolved. And that's ongoing, of course, you know couple have pleaded guilty, but Householder is still maintaining his innocence and fighting the charges. And the other odd thing is that the the Elections Commission director said they can't move forward on Yost's complaint until Householder's lawyers respond. And they and they haven't. Anyway, we're not going to see anything on this for a while. And as you said, the federal racketeering charges is much more consequential, but it's it is just kind of you know, when you think about the magnitude of all this campaign finance 
allegations, it's it's toothless. It is. It's toothless. <laughs> it's toothless, but the those charges are significant too. It's just that they're not going anywhere now. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit surprised at how slowly the criminal case against him is moving in federal court. I mean, he's making a mockery of the entire thing. He's still in the House because Bob Cup and his other Republican House members refused to oust this guy who has disgraced them all. So, so what's to lose? I mean, you know, he knows that. Yeah. If I get convicted of the racketeering case, no one's going to care about the campaign finance laws. And if I manage to get free of the racketeering case, then I'll deal with the campaign finance laws. Yeah. Why not use like a million dollars to defend yourself in uh, against the criminal case? Yeah, it just know? doesn't seem like Even anybody's if- trying to hold this guy to account. And we're now, what, eight months since he got indicted. And it's just kind of a Again, he's making a mockery of the system, but only because Bob Cup and his fellow House members are allowing him to do that. I'll have to see what's next. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Was the deal to build the taxpayer-owned Hilton Hotel in downtown Cleveland a bad deal? Did Columbus cut a better one? Laura Johnston and Susan Glazer had a fascinating story looking at this deal that made you wonder whether we kind of screwed this up. You could definitely ask that. It probably depends on who you're asking if it's a good deal or a bad deal, but Columbus definitely has a better deal. They haven't had to tap their county reserves to bail out their new, barely new, downtown convention hotel. Well, here in Cuyahoga County, we're playing an extra unexpected $22 million to make debt, tax, and insurance payments for the hotel this year and last year. That's on top of $10 million annually the county pays to reduce the debt on the Hilton which opened in 2016. But Cleveland is not alone in this problem. There's more than a dozen publicly owned hotels in the United States, cities like Chicago, Houston, Denver, Dallas, and all of them are facing this severe financial distress because of the downturn in travel from the coronavirus. And hotel occupancy nationwide last year was like 44%. That's a record low, down from 66% in 2019. In Cleveland downtown, it was 31%. So I guess every hotel is having to dip into savings to pay, but not every hotel is spending taxpayer dollars to do that. In Columbus, they have this really neat thing I didn't know anything about, that they have reserve account based on rent that their like hotel authority collects from property it owns in the neighborhood. And that is a $36 million fund that is paid down the debt while they're not making enough money. And you got to wonder, like, why didn't we think of that? Well, I mean, that's the big question. Why didn't we put together a reserve fund? Why did we create a plan that was based on things always going well? I mean, it's the difference between the county budget and the city budget. The city budget is loaded with lots of reserve now for downturns, and they can weather some of the the hits they've taken because of the pandemic. And Cuyahoga County in setting up this hotel deal just didn't do that. We should say, though, let's go back five, six years to when this hotel was on the drawing board, the the city was working feverishly to attract the Republican National Convention. Without this hotel, we probably wouldn't have gotten that. Once this hotel was in the works, some other hotels were built, but this is the signature hotel. We have had a remarkable amount of goodwill across the world because the RNC was here. I imagine there are studies showing the immediate financial effect of it, but we're getting a long-term financial effect of it. So you might be able to argue that while the taxpayers have to pay some money here to prop this thing up, that the region has benefited by a lot more dollars 
as a result of why we built it. So right, like the hotel was never intended to make money. It was just intended to bring this economic development. And you know, we had the RNC, the MLB All Star Game. Obviously, we're getting the draft next month. Who knows if all of those things would have followed? But I guess there is there is hope that one day we'll sell it to a private developer and then we won't be on the hook for it anymore. Yeah, we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has infuriated untold numbers of Ohioans who cannot find coronavirus vaccines in his you're-on-your-own system. So what finally convinced him to do what other states have done and open mass vaccination centers? Jane Cahoon, the... I still think we have a screwed up system. My 31-year-old daughter in North Carolina will be getting her shot in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> I just don't get Not it. You. Not me. I'm still a long <laughs> way away, it looks like. But what, what changed for the governor? Well, you know, he has always said that that they wanted to do this, but only if they had enough vaccines. So now the federal government, the Biden administration has come through on this. They're going to provide the doses just especially for this mass vaccination center that they're going to open at Cleveland State and that those doses are on top of the state's regular allocation. So on March 17th, they're going to open this center at the Wellstein Center and uh, they're going to operate seven days a week for 12 hours a day and it's going to be open for eight weeks. It's like a temporary one. And they hope to vaccinate up to 6,000 people a day and they're going to get assistance from federal personnel for, for vaccination support. And Ohio recommended this, the Wellstein Center to FEMA because they think this is a really good, you know, because of the demographics around the site, that it's easy for people to get to. There are 1.1 million Ohioans older than 60 in Northeast Ohio, and, and they're now eligible, as we know, under this latest, latest phase. But, um, and also child care workers we have now and corrections officers and other people who could uh, come here. I guess for the first three weeks, they're going to give people a first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. And then and then the second, you know, after that, they're going to loop around and come back for their second dose. And then there's going to be a final two weeks, I guess, where they're really not sure which vaccine they're going to have available. Maybe the Johnson & Johnson. I don't know. So and then people will be able to call or come in person to make an appointment or schedule schedule through the as yet to be active central scheduling system that uh, (laughs) DeWine has promised. So we don't know exactly when that's going to be up, but supposedly fairly soon. And they they are going to have transportation options for people like free bus passes, subsidized ride sharing services, you know, senior transportation, and maybe some local churches will help get people there. So now this is the first. And then DeWine also announced 15 other, I guess, more permanent mass vaccination sites around the state, including ones in Akron, Youngstown, Dayton, Columbus, Cincinnati, and a bunch of other, you know, smaller communities. So it's a good thing. One could argue that what spurred him into action was President Joe Biden, who is taking it on himself to push for mass vaccination centers across the country. And again, the federal government, right. as you said, is providing all the extra vaccine for the Wallstein Center. The rest of them are being run by the state and will be using the state's other allotment. It's good to see. I wonder what the age will be by the time we get to the end of that eight-week run. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
What does Ohio Governor Mike DeWine have to say about the vote by Cleveland school teachers not to return to the classroom today in spite of accepting coronavirus vaccine from the governor? Laura Johnston, I'm still a little unclear. Are they back today or are they not? I was going to ask you that question. Yeah, DeWine didn't sound as fiery as he did a few weeks ago when he called that Friday night last minute press conference to tell the districts, particularly urban districts, to get back in the classroom. He's continuing to try to appeal to people's hearts and minds. He said masks and vaccinations are two reasons that CMSD teachers should feel safe returning to their classrooms. He's repeated this over and over again as he tries to get kids back in the buildings. His goal was March 1st. And Cleveland Metropolitan School Districts had a more gradual plan, and it was supposed to start March 1st. It pushed it back to March 8th, and it was different sects of kids going back at different times. As of Friday, the teachers union had voted, you know, to keep teaching remotely, but the district says it's safe. We're going to keep working all weekend with the union to address their concerns. Do we want to roll these kids in over time? And we don't, they, they basically didn't back down and say, okay, we'll come back after spring break. So I, I hope we hear something today about what exactly is going on with the schools. It, it, I mean, at one point you're thinking, are they going to have kids in the classroom and teachers teaching by Zoom from their homes? Like, how is this going to work? What, is, what, what was the message to parents in the end? Were parents supposed to send their kids to school today? I didn't see any communication from the district over the weekend, except that we're standing by our guns, that we expect people to be back in the classroom. So I, I don't know. It could be chaos today, right? Definitely could be chaos. <laughs> I mean, one of the reasons they pushed back the date, I believe, was they wanted to make sure they let every parent know what is going on. And, you know, you're you're dealing with a whole a large population of students who have been out of the classroom for a year. So, you know, they sent mailings and brochures and and I'm sure they were emailing and calling. But to make sure that everybody's on the same page and then to change your message like this is going to be really confusing. Obviously, not every family is going to be an English speaking family. I'm sure they have all of the other languages. But, yeah, there's going to be people that are really confused. It's a it's a difficult thing to for any district to change how it's educating its students. But to add all of this in the mix, this is not clear. Well, I expect we'll be talking about it again tomorrow. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why do the Republicans in the legislature want to get rid of prevailing wage rules in Ohio, which require modest minimum wages for workers on large government construction projects? Do they want Ohioans to make less money, Jane Cahoon? <laughs> well, they say the sponsors of this bill, which is called House Bill 146, they say it's going to save local governments money and give them more control over spending. So that's where they're coming from. So you're right. They're trying to once again loosen the prevailing wage law. And this bill got its first legislative hearing last week. And so it would allow local governments, colleges and universities and other government entities to opt out of the state's prevailing wage rules. So interestingly, you know, the, this has been tried before, but you know who was holding it up was Larry Householder, because uh, when he was the House Speaker, he had pledged to oppose any of these anti-prevailing wage measures. It might have been one of the deals he made with Democrats, you know, who helped him get into the Speaker's chair. But interestingly, Senate President Matt Huffman he seems supportive of this type of legislation, which I think he's pushed in the past, but he kind of acknowledged that it might not get enough support in his caucus. He said, you know, sometimes I represent what a majority in the caucus is thinking and sometimes I don't. So 
He said he'd kind of be surprised if it gets traction in the Senate. And then House Speaker Bob Cup gave another typically vague answer about this when reporters asked him about it last week. He said, it will get its due consideration in committee and any determination as to its merit will be decided then. So I, I still am trying to understand what they're thinking. I mean, this is a message to people who work on these construction projects that we don't think you should get paid the prevailing wage. What, 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 how is that representing Ohio? Or is this really a message to the taxpayers in the, in the municipalities that create these projects that we're trying to save you your tax money? I, I, I'm just not sure. Well, that's how they're framing it. I just, it, it's, it's, pro, it's probably ideological, you know. I, but ideological how? We don't want people to get paid a fair wage? How is that ideological? What you what are you saying to the Ohio voter? We we think we think you should be paid less than a, a fair wage? Well, <laughs> you really want me to answer. Well, I just that. I don't get why this I mean, is a thing. Why why with all you've got in front of you, I mean these are the people that won't get Larry Householder out of the damn house. Why are you trying to send a message to People in the construction line of work that we don't want you to be paid a fair wage. I mean, that we're not talking about making people rich. You're talking about basic wages here, and I just right, don't. Right. So, so what when they go to campaign is the message that you know we we saved you money from paying your your neighbors. Yeah, we prevented these. You know, whatever we 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 saved you money. Right. I think that's Very, the message they want to send. Okay, but there's a whole lot of people that. That they're taking money from. I, I'm with Very you. strange. I'm okay, you. you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Data guru Rich Exner did a one-year look at the coronavirus pandemic by the numbers, looking at all sorts of categories. Jen Cahoon, how many coronavirus briefings has Ohio Governor Mike DeWine had? That would be 142, according to the Ohio Channel, which broadcasts them. I'm sure you guys remember when, you know, a year ago when this crisis first hit and the governor was holding them seven days a week. And they were like appointment TV when we knew so little about what was going on. And there was such a hunger for information. And DeWine and and Dr. Amy Acton, who was then the health director, provided us information and, and comfort. And then they eventually went to uh, weekdays and then like twice a week where where they are. But think now. about how many hours of your life you're never going to get back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now we joke about it. We have to say it's like, oh, my gosh, are we going to be going to another vaccination center to I see was another say, how person? How many shots were taken? Yeah. How many shots did they yeah. show um, on the Mike DeWine show? It used to be like the video of the day or whatever. But yeah, now it seems to be the shot in the arm of the day. But but anyway, Rich did put together an interesting uh, compilation of of numbers about the pandemic, you know, including what you would expect, the first cases and deaths that they confirmed a year ago and the history of the alert map, you know, how many times counties have been purple, et cetera. But he also has some fun ones in there, like the number of YouTube views of the DeWine and Amy Acton cartoon video. Remember that one that was created by a guy named Dave Stavka yeah. of Stavka? creative and stow in case you're wondering that got 1.3 million views and then there was one number this might be our favorite here that rich determined it was nearly impossible to calculate and that was the number of times that dewine and lieutenant governor john houston had to apologize to ohioans for all the problems plaguing the unemployment system 
It's a good piece. Laura Johnston, a couple of the reporters you deal with also did a, a pandemic anniversary set of stories about people who didn't sit home and gain weight and and just sit idly for the year. They use the year to do some pretty cool things. Yes, we called this glimmers of light in a pandemic year because they are kind of like, you know, some good things happened in the past. And what are you going to take away from this year? So Cameron Fields and Alexis Oatman, we had a piece that went up asking for engagement. Like, what did you do? Did you, you know, accomplish a puzzle? Did you write a book or learn a language? Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we were like, you know, Peloton's offering these free classes and you can you can learn a language and you can learn to play guitar and, you know, all of these things you could do with your spare time. And then most of us, you know, just watched DeWine instead. But um, they had, we found some great stories. There was a family that together lost, there's four of them, they lost 150 pounds on Weight Watchers. There was uh, folks that learned how to meditate and kind of take a breath in their own life and stop being so busy, which I could probably learn from. Uh, someone who is writing a novel about like what happened when Jonah was in the the belly of the whale in the Bible. Um, some really interesting stories, a minister who became more political. We've got a couple more that they're actually reporting and posting today to try and give like an idea of, of what Clevelanders were doing while we kind of waited this out. Okay. Check it all out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. February was a good month for Ohio's coffers. Are state budget officials conservative, incompetent, or just plain lucky? Laura Johnston, they got a whole lot more money coming in than they were telling us they expect. Yeah, so maybe a combination of all three, plus the waning of the coronavirus pandemic. The tax revenues came in at $1.9 billion in February. Compare that to the $1.72 billion they expected, uh, 10% above the estimate. Income tax returns were way better than expected. The budget director said this is due to a fluke based on delayed deadlines for filing tax returns. But there's also some real big numbers in this. Auto sales taxes were $22.9 million, about 23% above projections. Other sales taxes were $25.8 million above, which is 3.8 above projections. And yeah, stimulus payments seem to be a major factor in this. People had a little bit more money to play with. Yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating how many more cars were sold or, I guess, more expensive cars. We have to figure that out. We're going to come back and look at it. But it seems like people are spending a good bit more money than the state had predicted. I always wonder if the state uh, lowballs that so that it comes in as good news later. It's, you know, always under promise and over deliver if there's some intention in it. So we have extra money and we can give some more to the schools or something. It, it does feel optimistic, though, especially going into another two-year budget cycle. So, yeah, it's fingers yeah, crossed. We'll have to see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. All right, this is a dangerous question. Did, did, <laughs> did either of you feel like you got a lot of stuff done during the pandemic, or are you more of the I, I wasted the time kind? Oh, boy. Laura, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like I accomplished some things. I mean, at the beginning, I painted my deck. I like ripped out the carpet in my bedroom. I was like, I'm going to get this stuff done so that I don't have to do it in the fall when the coronavirus is over. Well, that, you know, as the year wore on, I think I was a little less motivated. But if I look back at the year, like, you know, I mean, the thing was, I don't know how much more free time I had between my kids being home from school for a lot of it and working so much. I mean, obviously, we have all the COVID stories. There was the um, political stories, there were uh, the George Floyd stories. So, I mean, it was a newsy year. I think we worked more than we did in past years. But 
yeah, at the end of the year, I don't feel like I sat around. I still haven't seen all of Netflix. How <laughs> <laughs> about you, Jane? Well, I, I think I, I'm not quite as ambitious as Laura, but I did get a couple of house projects done that I was uh, proud of. But then, you know, at, as Laura said, we've put in so many hours on this and then, you know, working at home, that feeling, as Chris Warnowski said, it's like, you know, I don't work from home. I live where live I at work. work. <laughs> live at work. Yeah. You know, so I just feel that, you know, my life's really been consumed with work and I'm not complaining. OK, but I don't feel like I, you know, I'm. I've, I've accomplished all sorts of things. You didn't learn a new language, Jane. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I work. What about you, Chris? No, I, I, I can't tell if it's because of the pandemic or just because we haven't been visiting our our grandson nearly as often. But I, I'm, I look back over the number of projects I got done this year and I'm kind of astounded. I mean, things had backed up on me and I've just been knocking them out one after another. I've had a year of many, many things getting accomplished. But again, I don't know if it's just because you know, we're home a lot more weekends or if I've just used the time more efficiently because I hate sitting around, but uh, I'm, I can't wait to get the shot. (laughs) I don't want to live like this anymore. (laughs) So let's get to it and have a summer of fun. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion of the news. 